0: All right, turn with me, if you would, to uh, Acts chapter 2 in your Bibles or on your phones or uh, however you do that. This week, we're going to finish uh, what we started last week. Uh, have we ever told you guys how much we love you? Now, um, Mike, Mike brought this. He wasn't here last week, but he, I guess, went and listened to the sermon and came up to me this morning with a big smile on his face and handed me the rainbow sprinkled donut, <clears throat> which I will eat later. I got sprinkles all over the pulpit. <laughs> Acts 2. We will read the text and then we will uh, hopefully get through the rest of this. We will get through the rest of this today, so. Um, let's actually start in, in, in verse 41, reading. So those who received His Word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles'. God, I thank you that, um, that you didn't just set things in motion and then leave us to ourselves. I thank you that the gates of hell will not prevail against your church because it's you who saves. I thank you also, God, that for whatever reason you saw fit to allow us to actively participate in the miracle of sinners being raised to life. God, I pray for any nominalism that we have about why we exist on earth to be killed a little more today. May we take seriously, soberly, what it is that you've called us to. And, 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 and may we, we know that it's nothing to be scared of, that, that we can have full confidence in those things that we feel inadequate in, like sharing the gospel with the lost people, because it's you who save. So give us, uh, honest ears today. And, and help me not to to be stupid, but just to, to be um, faithful uh, to the heart of your text and your truth. And uh, we ask this in your name. Amen. Uh, last week we dealt with 42. We talked about what makes a healthy church. Uh, we found there that uh, the staples of a healthy church is a devotion to apostolic teaching, it's a devotion to fellowship, which is one anothering. It's a, a devotion to uh, the breaking of bread, which is the gospel in our meal together. It's what Christ did through His body and His blood on our behalf. And that a healthy church has a devotion to prayer, or their prayers. And today we're going to kind of pull together uh, the rest of what we see a healthy church uh, being and doing all right in uh, verse forty three it says that awe um, remember this is this is a cause and effect thing Those of you who are coming in late. What happened is we just got our our first uh, post Pentecost gospel sermon that went out by Peter uh, in which we saw three thousand men get saved that 's the cause the power of the gospel word goes out. God saves people. What we're looking at now is the response. What, what the response is to people being wrecked by having Jesus come in and, and, and trespass on their hearts and their lives. This is the response to that. Now that we have disciples of Christ, now that we have followers of Christ, what does it look like to be a disciple of Christ? What does it look like to follow Christ? That's all we're looking at here. And uh, so we just we just saw this miracle happen through the preaching of the gospel. And it says in 43, "And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles." And this is apostles with a big A. I think that Brent talked about this a few weeks back. The apostles um, were a unique bunch of dudes. They were they were a little special. Um, And that unique bunch of guys were given a unique measure of authority that accompanied their unique message of the death and resurrection of Christ. I want you to remember this weird verse that Jesus told his then disciples that would become his apostles. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. That's a weird verse. But I want you to know that a lot of what we're seeing going on here with the apostles and a lot of what we will see as we move through the book of Acts is really going to be the the fulfillment of that statement that that God gave to the apostles. The apostles were given a supernatural authority that bends the laws and the rules of nature according to the power and the approval of God for the sake of the gospel. I'll say that again. The apostles were given a supernatural authority that bends the laws and the rules of nature according to the power and approval of God for the sake of the gospel. In other words, these guys weren't given power and authority to do signs and wonders so that they could impress people. Or so that they could benefit from it and make money or get a name for themselves. That's a lot of how the church actually looks um, uh, a lot of times the charismatic movement, the more Pentecostal people will actually make uh, the signs and the wonders and the miraculous uh, center stage. As if those are the things that we are here to gather around, but they're not. Those things only exist to validate and to authenticate the message of God through the gospel. They accompany each other, one points to, confirms, gives justification, validation to the other. It's all about the gospel. And we're going to see even guys that start coming to the apostles later on. And they're like, I want to do what you do. Can I buy that from you? No, you can't. The people here, um, seem to know that what they're, what they're experiencing through these signs and wonders, um, are things that human beings are not capable of producing in and of themselves. They know that they're seeing something supernatural. In fact, they know that uh, what it means is that God is among them, that God is with them, because their response is fear and awe. That's the proper response for for any of us when we know that we're in the presence of a holy God, a powerful God, is fear and awe. Verses 44 and 45. All who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. A healthy church is devoted to the insider. A healthy church is devoted to those inside the church. Last week we talked about... um, how consumeristic, uh, particularly the, the American church, has become in our thinking toward the church. How we largely pick our church based upon personal preferences and needs and wants. Whatever works best for us. And then we come across the text like this, which I think is what holds the beauty and the uniqueness The radical extreme sense of what the early church was experiencing. The other church was so polar opposite to the me church movement that we see today. Because there was nothing individualistic about it. Again, that doesn't mean these people were perfect. It doesn't mean the church was perfect. It doesn't mean they weren't selfish. But when you, when when you, when you look at what they were all collectively Unifying around and about, it's something that's attractive. And it doesn't look very individualistic. Uh, Not only has the modern church at large accepted and appealed to a consumeristic and individualized church experience, we're even finding and promoting new ways to make that better. You ever heard of online church? This is, this is something that is not super new, but it's becoming more of a staple in cutting edge church movements. And I saw just on my feed this week, I saw two different advertisements because there's, uh, there's promos that go out from these churches, you know, to, to say, Hey, we got this for you now. And I saw, I saw one this week. Um, that started off by saying church just got better. And then it said this. We want you to have the most comfortable church experience that you can have. Grab your favorite cup of coffee. Grab your favorite coffee cup. Grab your favorite robe or pajamas. Grab your favorite chair or couch and get coffee. Because we want you to have the most comfortable church experience you can. We just want you to be comfortable. This is what makes me uncomfortable. (laughs) This is what makes me uncomfortable. That, That my Lord hung on a cross of three nails that I should have hung on. that my lord was beaten so bad that he couldn't be recognized by people that knew him and that was my beating that he was humiliated publicly he experienced such a an extreme humiliation publicly one that I should have experienced but he did and we're trying to teach the people that follow that man how to be more comfortable And I don't understand it. It's embarrassing to me. Now, I'm not going to lie to you. I have those same tendencies. I am naturally as individualistic as I can be in my thinking, in my flesh. I'm a sissy. (laughs) I think a lot of times that's why I was born in this country and not another one. Do you know the rate right now for persecution of the church of Jesus Christ was greater in 2018 than any previous years? A lot of you don't know that. You know why? Because we live here. Like it's real. And these people aren't thinking about online church. These people are thinking about how they can get one piece Of one page out of that Bible in their language so that they can walk miles to crawl into a crawl space and light a match to read it. And we want our favorite coffee cup. We want church our way. It's crazy. And the reason I say this is not to beat you guys down. This beats me down to look at this because again, I know who I am. I know how I think. But it's pretty ugly when you look at a text like this. And you look at what the church had to endure at that time and what they were going through. And there's so much joy. And there's so much selflessness that we see here. That is proof of Christ among them, in them, through them, with them. How can we look more like this? You know, There's something very special going on here, something very community-driven. It would appear that the early church was by nature one or another oriented in an extreme way. It would appear that the early church considered and regarded each other more than they considered themselves. How biblical. It appears that they were truly bound together and unified in love because everybody's taking care of everybody else. It looks like a family, a a functional family, not a dysfunctional one. (laughs) Even though there were people in this church that clearly had more than others, they seemed to not be concerned with hoarding it and holding on to it. They seemed to be concerned with who needed it. And this is why you guys all came today. Herein lies the controversy. Because on the surface, this may look like something that many of us fear or don't like very much. So let's talk briefly about community versus communism. Over the years, I've gotten in a few discussions, and really they were debates, um, with people who insist that the Bible promotes and encourages communism. And this is the passage they point to. If you've never been in one of these conversations, you probably will at some point. Like, it's, it's a pretty prevalent thing. I've heard people in referring to this passage claim that the Bible teaches a poverty gospel. You guys hear us rip all the time on the prosperity gospel because there's a lot there to rip on. It ain't true. But then you've got, just like in everything, you've got this, this full, this full swing, right? <laughs> Where then it's, it, we, we have this thing that is real called the Poverty Gospel. To truly follow Christ is not to own anything. These people teach that the early church abandoned the idea of owning personal possessions or private property. The problem is that it doesn't say here that everybody's getting rid of everything. In fact, in verse 46, it tells us that they still owned homes, right? Because they were moving day to day Breaking bread from house to house. Does anyone know what the Eighth Commandment is? Oh, there's got to be something. What is that? Okay, that's right. Thou shall not steal. In order for stealing to be stealing, what must be true? That that thing that's being taken rightfully belongs to somebody else, Right? I will admit that I can see some similarities here to what people may interpret as communistic or socialistic ideologies. And communism and socialism, to me, they're just different different, different uh, notches on the same dial. But I also can't help to see the differences in this text. So let me say this. What we see here is not communism or socialism. What we see here is radical, Christ-driven generosity. It's totally different. Radical Christ-driven generosity. I want you to notice something important. Nobody's telling these people that they have to do this. That's kind of important. Nobody's setting a law in place saying, that stuff's not yours anymore. You don't have the right to it. There's no demand put upon these guys to get rid of their stuff. What we do see is that they are determining within themselves, due to the overwhelming love of Christ in them towards each other, to give up some possessions in order to help those with less. It is willful, it is joyful, and it is generous. None of which is able to exist within the framework of communism. Communism is dictated creating obligation. Christ-driven generosity is voluntary, creating blessing. Once you're obligated to give something, guess what disappears? Generosity. Once someone installs a demand or an obligation or a duty requiring people to give up things that are theirs, then you delete or you uninstall the very nature of the generosity and joy that's found in giving. And what kind of giver does the Lord Love. Absolutely, He loves a cheerful one, not an oppressed one. I mean, this is one of the wonderful things that Christ came and did, was He liberated us from laws and rules and regulations to give us something that can be felt and determined and walked in, in spirit and in truth, from here. No one who's reluctant or under compulsion is giving the way the Lord wants them to. He loves a cheerful giver. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Something that's determined in the heart, not the state house or the church. For example, have you ever met someone, we all have these people, maybe one, but maybe ten people in your life that um, demand your attention. Or people that Tend to talk a little louder than everybody else when you're together. They even talk over people. Um, and and then when they when they do get the floor, they're usually um, talking about themselves. Does anyone know anyone like that, or or do I have them all in my life? <laughs> do you know what I don't want to do with those people? I don't want to give them my attention because they're demanding it. And then you, and then you got these people that are, that are so meek and so quiet that are, that are never pointing arrows at themselves. And you know what I want to do with those ones? I want to give them attention. That's just, this is kind of like the natural response. You know what I mean? The right for us, God's people, to have and to own personal possessions, even if it be more or less than someone else's, is scriptural. In fact, God's people even have the right to be what we would call rich. It's not highly recommended, though. <laughs> We're told by Paul, First Timothy 6, this, as for the rich... Paul saying to Timothy, a pastor of a church in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. He's not charging Timothy, uh, or telling Timothy to charge them to get rid of their money. It's bad. He's saying, you need to be really, really careful if you have this kind of money. That's what he wants Timothy to charge him with. See, the Bible is not against people having money. The, the Bible is against the love of money. Those are two different things. And so if you're wealthy, if you're well off, if God's really blessed you that way, monetarily, financially, you should be praising God for it, and you should be very careful. Guard your heart. The Bible's against the love of money, which in turn causes us to hoard and collect and protect that money. What we have here is a doctrine of radical, Christ-driven generosity among the people of God. And at the end of the day, because of Christ in them, we do not see a people who regarded their stuff as their stuff any longer. We see a natural understanding of everything that they had belonging now to who? To God. It's all his. And when the people of God get this, they don't use it or see it as a platform of man-governed distribution. They see it as a platform of God-driven distribution. And that's a beautiful thing, and it's an attractive thing. In fact, I think that's part of what we see down here in 46, where it says that they had favor with all people. I think this is one of the obvious things that outsiders were looking in and witnessing was this God-driven distribution and generosity that was going on. It's something they weren't used to seeing because no one was telling them to do it. It's beautiful. It's attractive. And I want you to know that we believe this and we take this seriously at the, at the door. Not only do we take this seriously, we joyfully take part in this at the door. Those of you who call this church your home and give your money to this church, I want you to know that the greatest fund that we have, fund, is called a benevolence fund. It's a care fund. It's to do the stuff that we see going on here. And it's one of the highlights of our pastoral duty to distribute this stuff. It's one of the things we enjoy The most is taking care of the needs of the saints. And you need to know if you give here that that's where your money is going. It's buying tires for people who can't afford to buy them. It's keeping the electricity on for people who can't afford to. It's helping people get started into a home. It's helping people go into the mission field to serve God and go on a new adventure. This is where your stuff goes. It does not go into empire building. We are not looking to build a bigger, sexier building. We're not here to build you and us a palace. Like that stuff's going to burn. Our money goes to real needs with God's people. And we, we take pride in that. We, we love the opportunity to do that. And I know that many of you have been blessed by the reality of that. I don't know how much money goes out a year, but it's a lot. To the benevolence fund. It's our I think it's the biggest fund we have, right? Yeah. So I, I want you to know that we take this serious. A healthy church is devoted to the insider. You guys see that here? A healthy church is devoted to the insider. Look at 46 and 47. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Finally, a healthy church is devoted to the outsider. It's not one or the other. And it's real easy for local congregations uh, to be really good at one and neglect the other. A healthy church is devoted to its own on the inside. And it's equally as devoted to those who are not its own on the outside so that they may become insiders. We see once more here in 46 at the beginning that doing life together, which is what these guys did, is different than bumping into each other once a week. I know we live in a different time and a different culture. I know there's there's a lot of uh, characteristics about how we live now that are different than them there, but I, I, I do believe that um, we must all um, be involved in more than just showing up and seeing each other once a week, saying hi, and then going home. I mean, we we see this church doing life together. And it's not because there's a law saying we have to. It's because it's so ridiculously beneficial for each and every one of us in our Christian growth and maturity. We're made. God has put us together stone upon stone in the church to do life together for a reason. We need each other. We need to be mortared together, bound together. It makes us all stronger. God designed it that way. We see here that the church together is both private and public. It says day by day, they're gathering privately, house to house, but also publicly in the temple area. So they're being seen by others and seeing others. They're being known by others and knowing others. The true Christianity is not an exercise in isolation from the horrible, wicked world outside. The horrible and wicked world outside is who we were before we were brought inside. Don't we want other people to enjoy that too? When it says attending the temple together, it doesn't mean that they were in some kind of closed worship service at the temple, inside the temple. It means that they were more than likely, I would go ahead and say they were, in a place called Solomon's Portico, which was a colonnade. It was a huge covered porch area just outside the temple entrance where anybody and everybody from the city hung out. It was the epicenter of public and social life in Jerusalem. And the church hung out there daily. What do you think they were doing? The early church ca- uh, connected with, cared about, were intentionally around and making a deep impression on outsiders. It says here in 47 that they were praising God and having favor with all the people. Now, this is yet another place where all doesn't mean all. Because we know by reading this book as we continue through it, that they had as many enemies as they did friends or fans. I don't know how many times these guys were going to see them getting thrown into jail because they didn't have favor with everybody. And get beaten or threatened and released just to repeat the process again. Like people didn't like the church. So what does it mean? I, I, I believe that it, it just means that there were many types of people from all walks of life, backgrounds, and ages, ages witnessing and being drawn to this, this new radical thing that they were watching unfold before their very eyes. But here's the point. Outsiders were watching it and witnessing it because it was not hidden. Outsiders were watching and witnessing this because it was not hidden. The church's message and efforts were not being done behind closed doors as if it was a secret or as if it was exclusive. This revolution was going off in public like a firework for all to see and be amazed and affected by. Also, that they were having favor with all the people means that they weren't jerks. We've talked about this before. They weren't rude. They weren't mean. They weren't thoughtless. When someone cusses at you at the road, you didn't cuss back. When someone threw a rock at you, you didn't throw a rock back. Those who, those would be the things that don't properly reflect the gospel in us if we were to do that. Jesus tells us, let your light so shine before men that they may what? See your good deeds and glorify your father which is in heaven. And yet, our greatest offering to the outsider is not our good deeds, but Christ's good deed, which is the gospel. And the early church was clearly about gospel proclamation above all else because the back of 47 says that the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. That's wonderful. The Lord was adding day by day those who were being saved. Notice who's doing the adding. You can answer that. The Lord. The Lord is doing the adding. How does He do it? Who does He use? What does He use? Us. The Lord's building His church. The Lord is saving and adding but he's using the means of us imperfect human beings through the preaching of the gospel. See, we're, we're farmers. We are farmers. <laughs> Ba-da-da-da-da-da, okay, that was horrible. <laughs> God has a field and he owns it. And he owns everything in that field. We are workers in the field. That's the, the partnership, if we want to call it that, that we have in this amazing gospel work that God is doing in building His church. The thing is that we need to take it seriously. We need to actually figure out what that looks like within our own context, in our lives, with the people that God has put around us and the places that He has put us. God's the one who saves; we're the means. Again, Acts chapter one, verse eight, he says, "You're going to receive power, and the Holy Spirit's come upon you, and be what my witnesses everywhere. You're going to testify of me everywhere." And he sends them. Romans ten fourteen says, "How will they call on him who they have not believed? They being outsiders. How will they call on him who they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him who they have never heard?" Getting interesting. And how are they to hear without somebody preaching? It's even more interesting. And how are they to preach unless they're sent? Which means that we are the means in which God has chosen to call all people everywhere to himself. Which means that we need to go. What's the first word in the Great Commission? Go. Why? Why can we go with confidence? Because all authority is Christ's. See, it's not about our ability or inability. It's about Christ's ability. And you know what that gives us? confidence to be obedient to the Great Commission. It's a beautiful thing. Does it mean everybody's going to respond favorably? No. Does it mean everybody's going to like us? Not at all. But if we're going to be offensive, it shouldn't be because we're offensive. It should be because the message is offensive. That's fair game. It's a two-edged sword. It condemns on one side, and it saves to the utmost on the other. And I trust that. And you can trust it, too. The church's main objective is not how to draw a crowd. The church's main objective is how to penetrate a crowd. That's my buddy Peyton Jones that said that, and I like it. (laughs) The church's main objective is not how to draw a crowd. It's how to penetrate a crowd. See, drawing a crowd is saying, I'm going to do whatever I need to do to get you to come to me. Penetrating a crowd is saying, I'm going to do whatever I need to do to go to you. This is like how we saw Jesus live his life. First, by not counting what he had in heaven, his equality with God, a thing to be held onto, like Philippians tells us, but by in humility, going, going to those who needed it most. When we watch Him go back home after a long travel, He doesn't walk around some area like every other Jew does. We see Him go to where the woman is sitting at the well that He's not supposed to be hanging out with. Jesus was always going to the needy and penetrating that crowd. That's why I'm here. That's why you're here. It's not because I came to the Lord. It's because He came to me when I most needed it. This is biblically how the church grows. A healthy church will have a burden for outsiders. And a healthy church will be outward focused. So we want you to consider yourself sent. <laughs> we want you to know that you have permission and, and, and you even have a, a mandate to go. Go. And into just those little places that that God has made for just you, that nobody else has. I have access to people in my life that you don't have access to. That's um, a gift from God. That's something special for me. I need to figure out how uh, to penetrate that. So we send you out to those places that are unique to you in your life. In fact. This is why we're on earth, right? And we've talked about this before. I don't know if you get this, but of all the things we've talked about a healthy church does, whether it's gathering around apostolic preaching and teaching or fellowship or breaking of bread or taking care of the deeds within the body. Do you know what all those things are? Those are things that are going to be done much better in heaven throughout eternity. You know what you won't be doing in heaven? You will never, 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 ever have the opportunity to share life with another person who's hellbound. It'll be done. This is why you will hear us say often, this is why the church exists. The pavement and the foundation of the church is mission. Being devoted to apostolic teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, prayer, all that stuff is stuff that we do on that car ride. Does that make sense? doesn't. I got people tripping on me right now. <laughs> I'm not even going to use that analogy. You guys understand what I'm saying? Yeah. We are here to go. And everything that we do when we gather together like this is to build us up so that we can go back out again and go. And then we get back together so that we can build each other up and go back out and go. Okay. And so you have permission to go. Here's what we see here, bottom line, in closing, we see an outpouring of the love of the gospel of Christ flowing out of the hearts and the lives of the people that have never been the same because of it. That's what we see in Acts 2. The love of God upon them and through them, causing them to say, wow, my greatest need has been met in the greatest way by God. God came to me in my greatest need in the greatest way. How can I not do the same for others? I want to do this for others, because they have a need too. And the truth is that the greatest form of hypocrisy that the Christian church can possibly display is not that an outsider might see us being imperfect. The greatest form of hypocrisy that we can display is to act like we deserve what God's given us, but someone else doesn't. The Gospel is for all people everywhere. Christ died for all people everywhere. God was unfathomably generous to me, even though I didn't earn it or deserve it. God has given us all great blessings in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus our Lord. How can we not want to reciprocate that same generosity with all that we have around us? This is the beauty of this passage to me. That we see no hypocrisy in the people of Christ because of the Gospel of Christ in them, and I pray that we would be this church. A healthy church is devoted to apostolic teaching. A healthy church is devoted to fellowship. A healthy church is devoted to the breaking of bread. A healthy church is devoted to the prayers. It is devoted to those inside the church, and it is devoted to those outside the church. This is the church of God on earth. This is what it looks like. Lord God, help us to be this church. Help us to be challenged in the ways that uh, only you can uniquely challenge us, God. Help us to be attractive to those that you're saving by how we live, by how we love each other, just like John tells us so clearly and strongly in his epistle. And all that, we know, flows from a heart of, of love for you. When you're bigger to us, God, when you're more beautiful and amazing to us, is when you do your best work in us. And so, and so I ask, uh, for, for maybe a little more of a peek <laughs> for each of us, uh, of your greatness, God, of your glory, that we may be, uh, completely changed and transformed even more into the image and likeness of your son. God, cause us to be um, confident in your ability to call those who you're saving. But Lord, don't allow us to be disobedient or to think that it's optional or to think that it's something that we really don't need to be doing because somebody else is going to do it, God. Give us each that burden. Give us each that fire to speak life to the people that are in front of us every day. And we ask it in your name. Amen.